I'm here with Dr. Frank Mitlerner, and we're going to talk a little bit about the greenhouse gas impact of cattle production, specifically beef. And Dr. Mitlerner, this is a very big topic for you. A lot of your research has gone into this, right? Yes. Yeah. So let's say that you're an average person in America. You've probably heard that beef production contributes to global warming. And the story is that cows produce methane, and everybody knows that's true. And methane is a very potent greenhouse gas, and everybody knows that's true. So the natural conclusion is that cows are a big problem for climate change. And it's not quite that simple, right? That's correct. Um, in order to really understand the topic better, I think one has to go a little bit into chemistry, but just a little bit. Uh, methane is really very different from the other greenhouse gases. The three main greenhouse gases we're dealing with are methane, CO2, and nitrous oxide. So how are they different? The last two, the carbon dioxide, CO2, and the, the nitrous oxide, they have a very long lifespan. Once they are in the air, they stay there for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Any kind of CO2 that you have ever put into the air through driving a car or so is still in the air. And the only way that that gas goes is upward, meaning increasing trends. The more we emit, the more accumulates in the air. These gases are called stock gases because they always add up. They don't go down. Now, methane is very different. It's not, it does not have a lifespan of a thousand years, but it has a lifespan of 10 years. So after a decade, it's gone. So there's a process, and that really makes methane very different from the other gases. There's a process that destroys methane, and that's called hydroxyoxidation. I will not go into that, but uh, what that really means is that if you, let's say, were to be the owner of a dairy or of a beef operation, and let's say you, you've been in the business for 50 years with 1,000 animals, then 50 years ago, your 1,000 animals put out methane. And for the first 10 years, that methane was really new methane because you started that business. But after that, you did not add any new methane to the atmosphere because anything that's emitted is also being destroyed because after 10 years, that gas is gone. All the emission inventories and all of the media output that you hear assumes that all the methane that's generated by, let's say, cattle adds up, but it doesn't. At the rate it's emitted, it's being destroyed. And that makes methane very, very different from the other gases. This is critically to know. So what this means is, if a country like Ireland or like New Zealand or like the United States, if they keep their, their livestock herds steady, if they keep their livestock herds steady, then they keep their methane steady. If they keep their methane steady, then they are not increasing warming. So do we increase global warming with our livestock herds? The answer to that is no, as long as we don't increase herd sizes. That makes sense. Um, what about the rest of the world where maybe beef and dairy production is not quite as efficient? Well, that's really uh, where a majority of the problem resides. According to the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, uh, developing countries uh, such as India, but others as well, 
emit about 70 to 80 percent, eight zero that is, of all global greenhouse gases associated to livestock. For example, in India, there are three times more cattle than in the United States. And they don't even eat them. Wow. So India alone has more cattle than the United States, the European Union, and China combined. But they don't even eat those animals. And those, those bovines in India that are dairy animals uh, produce an amount of, of dairy, of milk, that's dismal. It takes about 15 to 20 cows in India to produce the same amount of milk as one cow in the United States. So that's why these herds are so enormous. So what, what could we do to make those dairy cattle more efficient? Well, what we have to do is pretty straightforward. We have to do the same thing that we have done in countries uh, like the United States or Denmark or so. For example, in the United States, we used to have 25 million dairy cows back in 1950. 25 million dairy cows. Today, we only have 9 million dairy cows. So we have shrunk the herd drastically, but with this much smaller herd today, with the 9 million, we are producing 60%, 6-0, more milk. And that means we have shrunk our carbon footprint of the dairy industry by two-thirds in the United States between 1950 and today. The same can be achieved around the world through installation of a veterinary system, better feeding, better genetics, better reproduction rates, we can do what we have done here throughout the world. And that doesn't mean that we're exporting the U.S. CAFO model throughout the world, but what it does mean is that even basic vaccination and treatment against parasites, improvements in feeding and so on, will have a drastic improvement effect on um, national uh, production rates. While we're talking about different kinds of production systems, maybe uh, let's touch a little bit on the controversy between grain-fed and grass-fed beef and the environmental impact of those two systems. Well, what most people don't know is that, for example, here in the United States, um, all cattle are raised on pasture, regardless of how they are finished, whether they are grass-finished or corn-finished, they all start out on pasture. And when I say start out, I mean they live the majority of their lives on pasture. Those animals that are corn finished are finished in a feedlot, fed corn for the last four months of their life. Prior to that, they were on pasture. So most people, first of all, don't know that. Um, but then the controversy um, erupts over people saying, well, the feedlot system must be much more environmentally detrimental. Um, Actually, it is more complex than that. For example, when it comes to methane, um, we as scientists were surprised to see that beef animals in a feedlot hardly ruminate. You hardly see any belching going on. And the reason why there is no rumination or very little going on is because their diet doesn't lend itself to methane production. So in feedlots, like it or not, the majority of feed is concentrate, meaning it is a, a feed base other than roughage that does not lend itself for methane production. The methanogens, those methane-forming microbes in the rumen, in, those, in the stomach of, of a beef animal, um, those methanogens 
uh, need roughage to produce methane. The more roughage or fiber is in the diet, the more methane they will produce. In a feedlot, the amount of roughage in the diet is much lower than it is on grass. As a result, there's much less methane production going on. So that is one of the reasons the substrate in the feed that doesn't lend itself for methane production that uh, is to be blamed for a lower methane uh, output of grain versus grass-finished animals. But the other one is simply the lifespan. If you have a grain-finished animal, that animal will go to slaughter around 14 to 16 months of age. So let's say, let's call that one and a half years, and then they go to slaughter. If you finish an animal on pasture, that animal will be 26 to 30 months of age. So almost twice as old as its grain-finished peer. What does that mean? Well, that means that if an animal lives twice as long, almost twice as long, then it will have much more time to produce uh, environmental uh, impacts. Let's say it has more time to consume water, it has more time to excrete manure, it has more time to belch, and so forth. And that cumulatively leads to a situation where a grass-finished animal will have about 25 to 30 percent more carbon emissions associated with it than a corn-finished peer. And that is taking into consideration the fact that a corn-finished animal, of course, eats corn, and that corn was produced someplace and also had environmental impacts. Um, but all of that taken into consideration using a life cycle assessment approach will lead to the result that the corn-finished animal will not have a higher but a lower overall environmental impact. Wow, that's interesting. And the deeper that you dive into this topic, the more things like that you find out where it's, you know, it's just more complicated than than you would expect based on what you've seen on social media. And one of those messages that I can think of that's repeated over and over is that we're using land to feed animals and we should be using that same land to feed humans and that would be more efficient. But that's another one of those areas that's a little more complicated than that, right? Absolutely. This is, um, this is another issue that people are really confused about. Um, just imagine all agricultural land in the world. And let's look at what this agricultural land looks like. Okay? About two-thirds of all agricultural land in the world, two-thirds is called marginal land. Marginal means... Um, that either the soil quality is not good enough or there's not enough water to grow crops. Two-thirds of all agricultural land in the world is marginal, cannot be used to grow crops. What do we do with that land? We use it for livestock. And to be precise, to use it, we use it for ruminant livestock. Because ruminants are able, like cattle and sheep and goats, they are able of using non-human edible feedstuff, such as grasses and certain legumes, and convert those cellulose-containing feedstuffs into animal-sourced foods, such as meat and milk and so on. So, ruminant animals are the ones making use of two-thirds of all agricultural land. Why? Because we cannot use that land for any other purpose. Period. The remainder... One-third of all agricultural land is what we refer to as arable land. 
that's the land where you can grow crops. And crops for animals and for people. Now, the criticism sometimes is, well, why do we use any of that arable land for feed production for animals? Well, the simple answer is because people like animal source foods, and animal source foods are highly nutritious, are very nutrient dense, and people simply demand it. Okay? And so it is not an ivory tower discussion of you know, what's the most efficient use of land and, and should we only use the most efficient food items to grow there. That's not how humans operate. Okay? Now, I can tell you there are different things, for example, that we can drink. We can drink water. But we can also drink wine, or we can drink tea, or we can drink coffee. But there's no reason we drink tea or coffee other than we like it. There's no nutritional reason behind it. It takes 700 liters to, to produce one liter of wine. Isn't that wasteful? Sure. So I could just as well say, let's quench our thirst with water and save a heck of a lot of, of water to produce wine or coffee or tea. But guess what? We humans are not just rational and ivory tower type of people who say what's the most efficient way of producing what we eat or drink, but we also do it because of cultural reasons or simple because of pleasure reasons. It's not a reason why you and I would eat chocolate ever other than we like it. Yeah, that's a very good point. And so it's certainly, you know, when you have a huge problem like climate change, which is a crisis that's already here, and people are discussing how to deal with it. I think there is a lot of wasted time talking about what's the silver bullet solution when we need lots of solutions and we need to make sure that the things that we are doing are things that will work. But ideas like just telling everybody they shouldn't eat meat, that's not very practical because I don't think that it will happen. And as you mentioned, you could do the same thing with tea and coffee and wine. It's really no different than saying, okay, we just need to have half as many people on the planet. Just pushing that message does, is not going to make that happen. So since people that don't want us to engage in animal agriculture have done a fantastic job at spreading this message that meat and dairy are responsible for global warming or largely responsible for global warming. What can we do to get the message out there that that's not the case, it's more complicated than that, and that we really need to look at the data? So that your listeners really get a feel for how significant this issue is, or how insignificant it is, I should say, the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency of the United States, looks at all sources of greenhouse gases. And According to the EPA, all those sources consuming fossil fuels, such as transportation, power production and use, uh, cement industry, and so on, combined are responsible for 80 percent of all greenhouse gases in this country. All of livestock and feed production in the United States combined, 3.9%. Okay, 3.9%. So one of the big issues is that people in animal agriculture try to appease that 1% or 2% of the fringe that make all this noise, and they completely forget the 98% that actually like animal source foods and that have high confidence in that food being produced in a humane, in a responsible uh, uh, fashion. And we need to stop doing that. We will never appease the fringe. Okay? You will never appease those people shouting for meat tax and 
um, propositions and so forth, uh, we need to make sure that we open up to a public that increasingly often now wants to know where their food comes from and that we open ourselves up and talk to them about how it's produced and why. Okay, And uh, that has not happened in the past. And that is a big black eye animal agriculture has. And rightfully so, because you cannot sell something that people have an emotional relationship with, which is food. And when people ask, uh, how is this food produced? You cannot say no comment. Okay, there's no reason for us to say that, but there's every reason in the world to explain why we do what we do uh, and uh, because we do it exceptionally well. Now, you, you just mentioned uh, the comparison of food versus other activities. I just give you one example so that your listeners understand how um, overblown a lot of the frenzy is that, that they're listening to right now. Assuming that you were an omnivore right now, Let's assume you were to go vegan for the next year, not eat any animal-based foods. Then that would save 0.8 tons of greenhouse gases. 0.8 tons. If you were to fly from here, from the United States, to Europe and back, per passenger, that equates to 1.6 tons. So to change your diet from omnivore to vegan for one year is half the impact as one transatlantic flight. That wow. tells you what the hype, what you should think about the hype that's that's coming your ways uh, as a citizen by those people who try to um, work through their anti-animal agriculture agenda. Wow, that's amazing. And when you watch some of the documentaries on this topic, the message is very much that the only thing that you can do that will make an impact is to stop eating meat and dairy. When you look at the data, that's just not really the case. Well, the same people who are saying that today, 10 years ago said we should stop eating meat because of ethical reasons, because they don't agree that animals should be in barns. Um, and then they, they looked at other means to, to get people to stop eating meat and, and consume dairy and eggs. Uh, none of that stuck. But the carbon footprint discussion does stick, okay? So, and many people in animal agriculture just don't really uh, or haven't really spent enough attention on that very topic. And, um, and now they see, wow, this is more serious than, than we originally thought. Uh, it is high, high time now to really take this seriously, to take uh, consumers' perceptions around this seriously, and to make sure that uh, producers understand that in order to keep their social license to produce animal-sourced foods, they need to engage in this topic. They have a great story to tell, but they need to start telling it. I have to confess that even though I work in agriculture, I'm very concerned about climate change. Uh, I'm our sustainability manager here at Alltech, and for a long time, I I thought this was a valid message that that meat and dairy were worse for climate change than other foods. And so I felt a little guilty every time I ate meat or dairy. Some, I didn't think about it every day, but you know, I, I thought it was a legitimate thing. So I was, I was very happy to, as I was researching you and, and preparing for this podcast and, and learning more about the topics that you talk about, I was excited to find that it was a more complicated story than that. And I, I think it's just very important that we get that message out there to people 
So where can people find out more about what you've written and maybe find you on social media? So about a year ago, I started on social media. Before then, I thought it was silly, but now I know I was silly thinking that. Uh, I'm on Twitter. My Twitter handle is GHG, that stands for Greenhouse Gas, GHG Guru. And um, that's where you find me for sure. If you are interested in publications that I have published, you will find me on ResearchGate. And all you need to do is put in my name, Frank Mitlerner, and you'll find the publications that, uh, that I'm putting out. Uh, not all of them uh, in peer-reviewed scientific papers. Some of them uh, on in other outlets, such as The Conversation or, or uh, Medium. Uh, these are web-based platforms. Um, but the reason why I go onto these platforms, too, is because you, you reach a lot of listeners or readers that way. In general, when you Google my name uh, or names of people you're interested in, you'll find everything now on the Internet. All right. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Mitlerner. It was fantastic talking to you. Well, thanks for having me. Pleasure.